Okay, you're on your 15-minute break at work. And a co-worker comes up to you and says, Hey, I hear that you are one of those Christians. Um, could you tell me what it is that you believe? How would you answer that question? It might be a little tougher than you think. At first, you might say something like, Well, I believe in Jesus. Your friend might then say, Oh, cool. I, I, I do too. I uh, believe that he existed. I've heard some of his teachings. Golden rule. That's a good one. Uh, I guess I am a Christian too because I believe that he was here. You might go, okay, well, hmm, well, there's different things, different levels of belief. I guess I have to unpack that a little bit more. Uh, or maybe you would start off with something like, well, I believe the Bible, what the Bible teaches. And they might say something like, Wow, the Bible I have at home is 2,000 pages long. That's a lot. Could you maybe give me a summary of what it says? Uh, what's the story of the Bible? What's its point? What, you know, can I get the Sparks notes or the uh, Cliffs notes or whatever? So then you might say, okay, well, um, I'm going to share the gospel. I believe in the gospel. Even there you might go, and that's a good start. That's a good start. But you might say, well, are we talking about the short version or the long version? Right? Short version, we could say in three or four sentences. We're all sinners. Christ in his, or God in his love and mercy sent his own son, Christ, to die in our place, to take our sins, so that through repentance and faith, we can be restored to God. It's the gospel in about four sentences. Okay, we could say that. And your friend might go, yeah, but there's a lot of Bible there. Like, <laughs> maybe what's the long version? So then you might say, well, I tell you what, I've got my phone on me and access to our church website, and right here is the church's doctrinal statement. And you could start swiping through that one section at a time, which is also known as a hostage situation for your friend, right? <laughs> Who goes, oh, this is my 15-minute break is over. It's going to be about this now. So now, even as I present this situation conversationally, I want to say this. I think it's perfectly acceptable to give partial answers to people's questions, incremental answers to their question, to try to answer as much as they're asking and maybe pique their interest for a little bit more. But I, and certainly be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how he's leading you to, to reply. But I, I think Christians generally fail to be good witnesses for Christ in one of two ways. One, we say nothing at all. Or two, we try to say everything all at once. And sometimes the person says, I'll never bring that subject up again. Right? So we need to be wise about that and listening to the Holy Spirit about that. But one of the things I would encourage you to do in your efforts to be a witness for Christ is to see it as having gospel conversations, having several of them. This is going to be one of many a conversation that takes place over time with the person to whom you're witnessing. So let me bring all this back to a point. If I called you on stage right now and said, Hey, Bill. Hey, Susie. What is it that you, as a Christian, what is it that you believe? Go. Could, could you answer that? Could you give a good reply? So what would be sort of your elevator speech or your water cooler summary? Uh, I'm working on my, uh, my doctoral dissertation right now. And if you came up to me and said, Eric, tell me about your dissertation, I could glaze you right over. Believe me. 
Or I could give you sort of the quick summation that gets to the essence of it. And that's something that we need to do with regard to our faith. And thankfully, for about 1,800 years, the church has had just such a tool, just such a summary, known as the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The church historian and theologian Philip Schaff uh, has said this about the Creed, and I think this is a very helpful summary. He says, It contains all the fundamental articles of the Christian faith necessary to salvation in the form of facts, in simple scriptural language, and in the most natural order, the order of revelation from God to the creation down to the resurrection and life everlasting. That's a pretty good summary. Now, for those of you who have been a long-term part of Bethel Church, you know that our regular diet of preaching here, you know my commitment to expository preaching which is we start, we we look at a book at a time, we start with an introduction, and we work our way through it systematically and slowly, and we answer these three questions, or I prepare the sermon along these three questions. Hopefully you have this burned into your mind or tattooed on your body somewhere, either one will do. But these questions, what did this text mean to the original hearers? What is the timeless principle How is that timeless principle significant to my life here and now? And that is a procedure that we want to regularly go through in our our study or in our preaching. And this will always be the main diet of preaching here at Bethel as long as I am privileged to be your pastor here. Uh, But for the next eight weeks, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, We're going to start this series called Creed, uh, which will teach through the Apostles' Creed. Um, And there are... We're going to teach through it one stanza at a time. And I want to just provide some explanation as to why we're doing this. Why this departure from the way we normally do things. First of all, there's this. We rarely, if ever, cite the creed altogether. In fact, I don't think it's been done in this church in the last decade. Maybe more. I'm a little uncomfortable with that, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I, I also sort of discovered, and, and uh, this was sort of new to me, but apparently Baptists are sort of creedal averse. They kind of don't love them. And that was sort of a, a new surprise to me. I grew up in First Baptist Church of Apple Valley in the high desert. I'm wearing my desert tribute shirt this morning with Joshua trees and cactus on it. And we recited the creed. It was right there in our hymnal, and we recited it. So I kind of thought it was something that Baptists did most places. But apparently, some Baptists are sort of adverse to that because a Baptistic distinctive is the authority of the Word of God, right? And we absolutely maintain and affirm that. The question then becomes, why then the creed? Why then any creed or any statement? So I'm kind of learning that that's um, uh, something Baptists are a little bit allergic to, and I want to challenge that. I, I don't think that's the way it ought to be. I think uh, we, main, we can maintain the authority of God's word while having a creed that points to it. So we'll get into that more uh, later here. Uh, also, I think it's something that we ought to do. We ought to recite on occasion, uh, maybe three or four times a year. And I would not drop that new practice on you without first teaching through what the creed says so that we have a good understanding of it. And then finally, I just would feel badly as your pastor, if you were here five or ten years and you had no sense of this tool, what it means or how it could be used for your benefit. That would, um, I I think I would be remiss in that. 
So we're going to work through the questions on your notes there. And if you're looking at your notes and you're going, oh my goodness, this is a hostage situation right now. Don't worry, we're going to go through these very, fairly quickly. And I want you to have this as a point of reference uh, throughout the series. So why the importance of the creed right now, at this particular moment? Why? And so here are a couple of reasons. Number one, denominationalism is on the decline, particularly in the U.S. What I mean by that is, the name that is on the front of a building or on its sign out front has very little to do with what is happening inside that building today. In our contemporary culture, uh, most of the time the name on the building or on the sign out front speaks more to who owns the building than on what is proclaimed inside. So for that reason, I think it's important. Even the term evangelical, which is the term I love and cherish, but even that term, unfortunately, has been co-opted by politics and social movements and many other things such that it doesn't even convey to the outside world uh, what we mean for it to convey. In fact, I bet if I were to ask you, what does evangelical mean? I bet less than a third of you could actually tell me. But evangelical actually means, it means for the gospel, or gospel-centered, gospel-oriented. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be an evangelical church. That's what we are. But unfortunately, even that, I think, has been sort of confused. In fact, if you were to uh, tell someone, oh, I'm an evangelical, they wouldn't think of matters of faith. What would they think of? Politics. You're a right-wing voting bloc. So this is another reason. Also, uh, because secularism and progressive movements are absolutely increasingly pressing in upon the church. And they cause the church to have to defend what it is that we really believe, to guard orthodoxy. And then fourthly here, because church attenders today are maybe more transient than any other time in history. Uh, And this this statistic is a little bit old, but even at Bethel here, the the average um, turnover we experience is 10% a year. So that every five years, half of the church would be entirely new. So when people are moving around that much and looking for new churches, I think this can be a helpful tool uh, to kind of find a good, like-minded church as you, as you relocate. There are other things, too. You should definitely look at the doctrinal statement, hear the preaching, all the rest. But this is one of many tools. And I would just say that because of these things, the Apostles' Creed may be more important and necessary right now in the church in America than it has been in the 50 years leading up to this. In other words, I would say that the utility of the creed now almost matches the original utility of it when it was first devised. Okay, and we'll unpack that some more. So what is this utility? What does the creed do for us? What did it used to do for others? What does it do for us? First of all, It helps us to know the core tenets of the Christian faith. Secondly, the creed can help us identify good ministry partners. Who should we link hands with and link arms with in service in our community and with others? Uh, There have been times, our elder board has even used this in that way, where maybe a ministry, potential ministry partner would come to us and say, we'd really like to join with you in such and such an effort. And we would have to say, okay, Well, what is it that you guys believe? Can you affirm, say, the Apostles' Creed? And in at least one instance, they had to say, well, no, 
we don't believe in a triune God, we believe in three gods. Oh, well, easy answer. No, we're not going to partner together with you in this initiative. So it can kind of help make decisions um, like this. Again, it can help you spot like-minded churches as we travel and relocate. This is something our family's needing to do now as my kids get older. One already in college down in Los Angeles, and Eleanor getting ready to go in a few weeks. You're going to see a crying dad when that happens. You feel different when your daughter goes than when your sons go. When your son goes, you're like, get out. When your daughter goes, you're like, just stay home and make cookies and hang out with us. But they got to find a local church to belong to that preaches the scripture that's trustworthy. And again, this can be a helpful tool uh, for something like that. The creed also connects us to the universal church. And Pastor Ethan talked about this briefly this morning. On the back of your notes is the Apostles' Creed or a modern version of it. You'll notice there's a phrase at the bottom that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And Protestants and evangelicals flinch and stutter when we get to that point. I'll just, I'll sort of, Tip my hand here so you understand. That's a small C. Small C Catholic simply means universal. It means the one true church. It doesn't mean capital C Roman Catholic Church. We'll get to that all later, but just so you understand that. That's one of the things the creed does. It helps connect us to the universal church, not just of the moment, but of history. And it reminds us of, of this deep and really rich heritage that we have as the one true church throughout millennium. And that is an incredible privilege. I think it also produces in there a little bit of humility too as I think about, I love C.S. Lewis's phrase, chronological snobbery. Do you guys know that one? It's this arrogance of the present moment to say, well, we've got it now. I mean, we've resolved all the theological issues. We've, I mean, we've really got the pinnacle of orthodoxy now, other than, you know, not like those people who came before us, who maybe were Pado baptist or post-millennial or, you know, Augustine's allegorical method of interpreting scripture. See, those guys all failed. We've got it now. And actually, I think it produces some humility for us to go, oh, these are the things, these are closed-handed things, issues of the faith. There have been plenty of other discussions along the way, but these are sort of the essentials. The creed helps to distill the apostolic teaching, the teaching that was delivered by the apostles. It doesn't mean that it was written by them, but the creed looks to capture what it is that they taught. Uh, and sometimes it's helpful to have that in shorthand, Right? So as I was thinking about that um, to, as a way of illustrating it, made me think of a map. Now, maps have changed quite a lot these days, right? Once upon a time, you had like this 16-folded you know, map in your glove box, and you had to travel with somebody so they could unfold the thing and read it and help direct you, right? Then, of course, now it's just you know, Google Maps and Apple Maps and whatever. When we first came to Fairbanks uh, 21 years ago, I was trying to get a sense for how is this town laid out? I kept getting confused about Johansson and college, how they intersect. I'd be coming along, you know, the Steese or along university and go, I thought that was the other way around. I didn't realize that there was sort of an X there. But this map, when we first got here, and this has developed a bit over the years, but do you remember seeing this? This yellow map, it's not to scale. It's not detailed. It doesn't tell you how far in between things. It doesn't probably have your street on it. It just kind of says, generally speaking, this is where things are. As a visitor, 
These are the things worth seeing. And that's it. And kind of being able to get this large-scale overview of this uh, is sort of a helpful tool. I can't fold it up again. We'll let, we'll let Ethan deal with it later. Actually, the funny thing is this morning, I forgot to bring it in. And so I called Brent Curtis. I said, hey, Brent, did you leave your house yet? And he said, no. And I said, I need this map. Can you find it for me? So he found it on the way in. So the moral of the story there is, if I call you on Sunday morning, don't answer it, because I'm asking for you probably to bring something for me. What the Apostles' Creed is not, uh, it is not written by the Apostles. There was a legend or or sort of a belief for a while that each of them wrote kind of a stanza of it that has been debunked, that is not the case. It is not written directly by the apostles. It is not scripture. It is not inspired and inerrant in its particular form. Okay, again, you might think about it almost like a sermon. Is a sermon, does it carry the authority of scripture? No, it's a vehicle by which the truths of Scripture are conveyed. And it's only as good as it is accurate to the text. And the Apostles' Creed the same. Uh, There is the authority of Scripture contained in it, but it itself is not Scripture. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't intend to be. In fact, you could look at it and go, what's missing in this creed? There are some important doctrines missing in it. For example... There is no doctrine of scripture in it. There is no doctrine of the atonement in it. How is it that Christ's sacrifice does something for us? There is no doctrine of hell within it. So you can see it doesn't contain everything. It's more or less scaffolding for which a lot of the details kind of get put in there. All right, the history of it. Well, amazingly, we don't actually know the author, if it even has a singular author. Uh, It emerges first in the second century, uh, and there was even kind of a version before it known as the Roman Creed, which contained about 80% of it. Uh, But, uh, and then uh, there were a few different versions in the second century, and then about the fourth century, they kind of ironed out the majority of the differences such that it it looks very similar to what we have uh, today. Uh, There is, however, uh, quite a debated section in this creed. And so, again, if you look at it in front of you, there's a phrase that's underlined there. It says, and he descended into the... Yeah, yeah, and what? Depending on your background or your history, there's different answers here. This passage is known as the descensus, which speaks of his descent into what? Some versions will say Hades. Others will say Sheol. Others will say hell. Others will say the grave, and others will say, as we have here, the dead. So there's some uh, things to sort out there. I'm sure you'll be looking forward to that sermon. And as the preaching schedule has it now, that particular sermon will fall to, drum roll, Pastor Adam. (laughs) Ironically, when you guys are working through the descensus, I will be ascending. I'll be on a goat hunt uh, down in uh, Sitka. So... As I am going up, I will think about you guys going down, okay? So, <laughs> praise God for associate pastors. Okay, how has the creed been, the creed been used? Um, this was fascinating to me in my study. I learned a lot on this uh, this week. I did not know, but originally it was used as an evangelistic tool. Even as I just kind of talked about or opened with, if someone asked you what it is that you believe, what would you say? This is an answer to that question. 
And in fact, early on, it was a way for Christians to distinguish themselves away from Roman paganism, but also away from Judaism. They were distinct from both. So it was a way of declaring what it is they believe. Uh, this creed was also referred to as sort of the rule of faith, and it's, long, it's been a long-held standard of orthodoxy so that the, the church could check itself against it. Uh, it was also stated publicly as a profession of faith by those who were coming forward at their baptism. And I did not know that. So Baptists, what are you talking about here, right? There was uh, actually an interesting tool. What they would use is as someone came to know the Lord, and this is particularly at Lent time, they would introduce a, a catechism, a teaching of the Apostles' Creed systematically so that at the time of Easter, those coming forward for baptism would affirm and declare their personal belief in what it says. And so it was used um, that way. Uh, what is its nature? Uh, I couldn't think of a better way of kind of getting this out of it here. And there's some interesting things here. One is this. It's subversive. It's subversive. In other words, by declaring what this says, by declaring these convictions, we're saying we disavow the ideologies of the culture around us. We do not live by or affirm the gods of this age, but we profess faith in a triune God. And we say this in a sense as an act of defiance against whatever movements might emerge in this particular day. One writer said this, uh, Matthew Crocker, I thought this was a great statement. He said, when we recite the creed, it shows that we refuse to capitulate to the cultural narrative that newer is always better. It shows that we must resist regression through progression. It ties us to our past, reminding us that we hold to one gospel and are a part of one church. It's an affirmation of our common Christian heritage of the basic beliefs that unite Christians throughout the world and across centuries. I thought that was a very good statement. Also, and this is important, the creed is Trinitarian. If you'll look at it again on your, um, on your notes, I want to show you not only is it Trinitarian because of what it says, but even how it's arranged. So the first statement, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty. As we move down into the next section, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And into the next section, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I think this is absolutely wonderful because it is common today that churches prioritize one member of the Trinity over another. And that's a problem. Cults are made in such ways. Okay? So this is important that it is um, Trinitarian and laid out this way. Also, uh, one of the really helpful features of the Apostles' Creed is that it gives us a balanced view of Christ. A balanced view of Christ. Uh, let me illustrate it uh, this way. If you let, maybe you've seen this uh, advertising campaign called He Gets Us. Have you guys seen this one? Especially in big cities, uh, Seattle, Portland for sure. I think down in Los Angeles as well, He Gets Us. And it's fine. It's okay. It's kind of cool. It's a, it's a public portrayal of Christ. It tends to focus on his compassion and empathy for the down and out, those who are lost. And it's trying to show, in a sense, the softer side of Jesus. 
Well, that's great, and that's wonderful, and that can spark good conversations for us, good gospel conversations. The problem with it is, it's insufficient. It's insufficient. In other words, let me, <clears throat> it fails to show that not only is Christ one who is compassionate and loving, it fails to show that he is a judge that is returning. Or if I could say it this way, he gets us, yeah. But if we don't get him, he's going to get us. One person wrote it this way, this creed reminds us that the Lord who came first to rescue us will come a second time to judge us. This, what the church confesses in the apostles, or thus what the church confesses in the apostles' creed is that we are saved by Jesus from Jesus. So if you only have the campaign, you have something insufficient. And again, the creed gives a good balanced view of Christ himself and his ministry and the need for it. Uh, just to bring this to a close, I want you to know I, I'm going to challenge you uh, to memorize it. Uh, we're going to work through this stanza by stanza. We're not going to proclaim it all together yet because I want you to know what it says, understand it before we would ask you to proclaim it. Uh, and, and then at the end, we will say it all together and sort of incorporate it into the life of the church. But I will close by reading it to you now. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the skills of many who can synthesize and write helpful tools for us such as this. We know, Lord, this is not the authorized word of God. We know it is simply an instrument which points to the word of God. We pray, Lord, that this series would be helpful to remind ourselves of core tenets of the faith, of the church that we belong to, not <clears throat> just widely here and now, but widely and deeply throughout history, the one true church of the true and living God. Uh, so, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to go through this series, and thank you also for the symbol that communion is. That we can be reminded again of what you have done for us in Christ. We know, Lord, we need this reminder over and over because we are so tempted to fall back onto performance and self-righteousness. So, Lord, confront us again with just how far we have strayed from you and how far you would go to bring us back to yourself as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Thank you. Bless you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.